Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies. From the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords, if it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Hello, welcome back to Fighting on Film. Now we're delighted to welcome back our good friend and uh, now repeat guest, uh, Peter Caddick-Adams, back to the show. Delighted to have you back. Robbie, it's so good, and it, it's it's been fascinating watching the way you've been growing um, in the the digital space. Um, Thank and you. How the world love you, uh, and uh, they know all about you. And it, it's uh, both you and Matt, um, and you've got a great formula. Oh, thank you so much. Well, no, I, I, and I intend to give you a boost tonight uh, as much as possible. Either that, or you know. The reputation is completely shredded over the next hour. <laughs> we'll see, won't we? <laughs> so but I think I, I managed to capture the uh, the mood last time with Kelly's Heroes being the greatest war movie of all time. A lot of people still support this this bad idea. So I'm not saying that the uh, the Bridget Romaga is the second best war movie of all time, but it's not a bad one, and that would be my starting point. I think you're right. And, you know, who better to join us, listeners, because Peter just released his book, 1945 Victory in the West. So it's a perfect jumping off point for the Bridget Remagen. And Matt, do you want to kick us off with cast this week? Certainly. Uh, well, as you know, it's a, uh, a Robert Vaughan and, and George Segal um, picture led by uh, two very good actors, I think. And I think they do a pretty good job at conveying the very dire times they both find themselves in. We'll talk more mm. about that later on, I'm sure. But yeah. um, Seagal plays uh, Lieutenant Phil Hartman, who's based on Carl um, Timmerman, uh, a, a German emigre who was born, I think, about 20 miles away from uh, where the bridge actually was. Um, and it's fascinating the way that the, the film takes vignettes of characters and does a little tweak to them and moulds them into different people. Um, 
Seagal, in terms of his films, um, The Longest Day in 62, Lost Command, um, and The King Rat, and lots of other far better known films, but they're his, they're his main war, war movie roles. Vaughan, of course, iconic for uh, the Napoleon solo character in The Man from Uncle. Um, and he had a really interesting career because obviously he began with that and, and the notoriety of you know Man from Uncle. But then later on, he was in a lot of films, a lot of um, sort of biopic films where he portrayed um, uh, Truman, MacArthur. Um, he was also in uh, a TV adaptation of Albert uh, Speer's book, um, uh, Inside the Reich, which he played um, Field Marshal Edhard Milch, uh, which I think was... Rutger Howe was Speer? I think it might be. Yeah. I, I can't remember. I've, I, I think I've seen it because I remember going, is that Robert Vaughan? <laughs> and it was um and then we've got ben uh gazara who plays uh angel sergeant uh, angelo um we've got bradford dillman as a kind of the major barnes who's a kind of um i don't know he, he he plays a character that he plays in a lot of films where he he's the bearer of bad news and he's the one that's pushing him to do these things and he, he's kind of almost like the um the major in Kelly's heroes in that respect, where he's a, a staff officer straight down the line. Yeah. Um, you know, he's trying, he's trying to get, um, get ahead in the world by using the assets he's got. And in, in this case, it's um, Lieutenant Hartman's uh, recce uh, company. That's the, the asset. And he's trying to push him towards getting, getting to the bridge. Um, and then we've got a, a few brilliant German actors. We've got um, Hans Christian Black, of course, who, is probably better known for uh, The Longest Day again and uh, Battle of the Bulge, uh, which we've covered on the show. Um, and then we have um, Peter Van Eyck, who plays um, Von Brock. Um, he has an extensive uh, war movie career, um, lots of 50s movies. Um, and then we rounded out with um, recognisable faces that play frequently play German um war movie roles like uh, Richard Munch, who plays von Sturmer, and Gunther Meisner, who plays uh, SS Obergruppe für uh, Gerlach at the end of the film, where they uh, uh, let Robert Vaughan's character know that he won't be uh, returning to the bridge and he's soon for the firing uh, post. In that little sequence, I always think they're playing the who could be the most evil um, officer mm. in that sequence. Yeah. <laughs> and Robert Vaughan's just standing like, well, guys, I did my job. Like, <laughs> What what strikes you is that the stereotypes of the German officers, mm. um, you you they're all cardboard cutouts um, of exactly what you expect the Germans to be, uh, with the exception of Robert Vaughan, um, and that's partly because of the roles they've played beforehand. So mm. even the faces are familiar as well as the the, the sort of Hollywood central casting idea. Uh, mm. Of you know either the hard beaten rugged German like Hans Christian Bleck or um, uh, the, the sort of evil sort of commander like uh, like Gunther Meisner or um, yeah. uh, or, or um, Van Eyck who's uh, who's the the German general who sort of initiates um, all the hardship on uh, on the German side and and there's a bit of that stereotyping going on um, on the American side as you as you mentioned I mean there's there's so much of the longest day feeding into Bridget Lamarck yeah. and I think. No, I think so people have right. already established their 
it's weird. People have established their characters in other movies and they're just pulling them out and, and dusting them off and giving them again. Modern cinema isn't like that. The, the characters are all far more created in depth um, and from scratch. And I think here, you know, there's a lot of, but that's the way movies were made in, in, in the 1960s. I think it's really fascinating that the two leads that we have in the film approach showing their uh, their circumstances in such individual ways. Robert Vaughan is is stoic, but then there's at times where he doesn't quite carry it to the point, and he's a little bit uh, caricaturish. Where some of his delivery is um, isn't perhaps as nuanced as it could be. And then <laughs> to see, see where he's chastising that the barman, the, the guy that went to the bar. Mm. Um, it, that's really like chewing scenery. It's the only part of the movie where I'm like, come on, Robert, you can do better. Come on. You know, I've seen you in Hustle. <laughs> I know what you can do. Well, yeah. Well, again, but, we, then... but again, we get the, the um, Napoleon Solo character coming through from Manor Uncle. And don't forget, you know, Manor Uncle um, has uh, only just finished 64 to 68. And I think this is Robert Warren's first movie after a very, very successful television series. So he's got to make that leap and that adaption. Um, and the first thing he does is he appears in Napoleon Solo-like cool sunglasses, which mm -hmm. are actually American aviators, which no German jet officer would have had in the Second World War. No. So he's he's brought in the whole sort of American super spy aura with him. And, and to a certain extent, that's the, that, that, that's the sort of slightly tragic hero that he, he, he plays. He, he comes almost in. That first view of him is is of a you know American super spy, but in a German uniform. Like a, a nod to the audience, going, "You you know who this guy is, right?" You know, yeah, but, uh, yeah you, totally. And it's it's this stereotype thing again. So there, yeah. there actually, I think there's a a bit of a joke because he's he's such a good actor. He, he takes you out of that. He mm. does but, actually. Um, he does do a good it's job. Interesting, doing it's that. interesting. Interesting casting. Yeah. Mm. I yeah. like I like that they introduce him as sort of um, an ancestral um, uh, German officer family sort of type. Uh, his father's recently been killed, um, and I, they they give a, a very subtle little bit of background to his character mm. that I I like. He's he's been wounded, probably um, D Day, perhaps um, Normandy campaign uh, during during that retreat. And then he asks, "How is it? How is it on the Russian front?" And then, um, and and such. And I, I think that in that little scene with um, with von Brock, they they give him a lot of um, grounding, but then mm. they don't really develop him later on, other than he becomes increasingly desperate. Um, whereas with with um, Siegel's character, I feel like they introduce him as this um, hard bitten, weary field officer who perhaps is just trying to keep trying to keep his men alive because you know they both both of these officers know that the war's almost over um and they're they're coming to terms with that in their own ways Seagal's kind of trying to keep his men together whereas Robert Vaughan's character he's more duty bound more Germanic in that respect I think definitely yeah they, definitely. I mean they provide interesting contrasts um mm, they do and um um, yeah, I mean, the, the Robert Vaughan's father is described as General von Kruger, um, mm. and yet the son is Kruger. So there's, I'm, I'm a great continuity buff, and there's there's a lot of little continuity errors 
like that, and that's one in the screenplay. But I thought I thought the script was you know written particularly well. And if we take the example of how in two or three sentences you give the Robert Vaughan character um, some background, um, that's that's what Hollywood scriptwriting is all about. Instantly, you've clothed the man and you've given him a hinterland in two or three lines. Yeah. Um, in a tiny little bit of dialogue that lasts just a few few you know scrappy minutes, um, and and the, the, that's why it works so well um, in in many respects. Mm. So I think production, if I may. So the film is based upon Ken Heckler's nineteen fifty seven book, The Bridget Remagen, The Amazing Story of March seventh, nineteen forty five. It's then produced uh, into a movie by David Walper using his own production company, The Walper Organization. He produced The Devil's Brigade, Victory and Tebe, and also a lot of TV work. But one series that stood out for me was um, it's the company that produced Roots uh, in the 70s, that seminal series, um, directed by a London-born director, John Gwillimin, uh, whose credits include I Was Montese Double, Guns at Batazi, The Blue Max and Towering Inferno, um, and even a Young Stanley Kubrick was uh, rumoured to get the directing job um, at some uh, at some stage during production, but he turned it down. Um, I often think what a perspective of the bridge would have looked like in Kubrick Ooh. style. It was just begging for that to have happened, but it didn't happen, alas. Uh, but it was written by Roger O'Herson. He did lots of TV work. I think this is probably his biggest credit when you look through his career. Um, and then the cinematography was by R Roger Cortez. He'd worked on uh, Eagle Squadron in 1942. And then in the same year as Bridget Remagen, he works on a he works on a, a sci-fi movie called They Saved Hitler's Brain. <laughs> it's like a, a two ends of the spectrum there. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, it's a bit of an odd one. He, he's another odd career where this is probably his standout feature um, in a sea of like almost B-movies and sci-fi films, things like that. Um, seems a very 50s type of director in, in his way, I think, um, from what I was researching. So it's filmed for five million, quite a big budget back back in the day, um, made one point five million back in rentals. Although I'm not sure if that's a modern fee or if that's from the time, because the further you go back, the, the box office figures just they don't come up. So I couldn't find a genuine box office um, take. But it's filmed on location in Czechoslovakia. Uh, the bridge used in the film was located in the town of uh, Davil, um, with the old bridge over the river Vlatka standing in for Ludendorff Bridge. Now, this is where the film <laughs> takes a complete monumental turn in terms of production. So I think the production of this movie could be a movie in itself because of what, what happens. So filming starts in um, June of 1968. And then in August of 1968, Daily Variety reported that Walper had made a formal complaint to the Czechoslovakian film industry regarding slanderous reports that an East German newspaper had claimed the Bridget Remagen was merely a cover-up for the CIA and American intervention in Czech political affairs. The producer cited East German reports that were published in May 1968, alleging tanks being used in the film were actually bought there to support liberal Czech leader Alexander Dubec. I mean... <laughs> Wow. I hadn't heard this. So when we were no. talking uh, this summer, uh, Peter told us about this. I was I was really surprised. And I think it's, as you say, it's it it's the kind of film that it is the kind of story that begs a film, isn't it? It's the only film I can think of where um, this sort of intervention has, has has taken place. And as you say, the the filming of 
the bridge at Remagen is as dramatic as the events that it, it, it portrays. Um, it's incredible. Because what then goes on to happen is the Soviets invade Czechoslovakia um, to suppress this liberal Czech rising. Um, and that stops the filming and the cast um, and crew have to flee. Um, you'll, you'll pick up the story, I'm sure, in a minute, Rob. But, um, you know, the it, it, it's... You know, they've got all these tanks that they've borrowed from the Czechs. They've got more they've borrowed from the Austrians. They've got shed loads of armaments. Um, but it, 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 the Czechs have investigated, and it's obvious that they are an innocent party. Um, mm. So, the, you know, the Russians are using this as a pretext yeah. um, just to create some an excuse to go in um, or to help support the invasion they had already planned. But you, it's so rare that in the middle of a film, you get a genuine invasion um, uh, and, and you're filming a war movie anyway. Yeah, it's incredible. And that they accuse the um, the extras of being US troops in disguise. Um, actors and actors and technicians were actually CIA agents, things like this. It's absolutely incredible. So then in the face of all these charges, um, when they're when they leave um, reportedly um, and, and they uh, he was they, they left a million dollars worth of equipment in Czechoslovakia that had oh. to be retrieved. They left four days worth of Dulux color film there, which was at the cost of $250,000 in 1968. Not small change. Um, it might be now in these multi-million dollar productions, but back then <laughs> that's a lot of money to lose. Um, so then plans were implemented um, and the filming resumed, but it was filmed in Hamburg and exteriors um, were filmed in Italy as well. But the relocation cost the film another 1.5 million. Um, and then the town of Most in Czechoslovakia was used for the uh, buildings that are levelled during the uh, fighting sequences because um, three, I think it's a third of the town was marked for demolition anyway. So I think it was a, a useful... <laughs> You know, happy accident. Oh wow! That a production those, team came those in bits are spectacular. Them. Oh, incredible! One of the standout with the, with the chaffee going by, and then the building just collapses. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, and then there's even a. I mean, this a whole thing of the film being interrupted by the the Russian inv Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. It was turned into a Radio Four audio audio drama in 2007, and it's a um, produced by uh, Tracy Spotswood, who wrote it. But Robert Vaughan re reprises his role and and it's him I think he was in his 70s at the time but it's um from his point of view and it's just incredible you know they I'm sure it's dramatized but they wake up one morning and the and the town square is full of Russian tanks and it's tanks everywhere they're, they're locked in a hotel room Robert Vaughan lost his PhD he was writing about blacklisted Hollywood um, actors in one hotel and then it was smuggled out and somehow found its way to the American embassy and then found its way back to Robert Vaughan, who then could turn in his PhD in 1970. Um, it's incredible, you know, how this hasn't been turned into a, a biopic of Robert Vaughan <laughs> making this movie. I mean, it's, it's begging for it. But if you can, the uh, audio drama is called Solo Behind the Iron Curtain and it's out there online. I listened to it today and it's it's fabulous. I it's, no it's great, isn't it? and Robert Vaughan has such a, a, a memorable voice. Um, and it, you know, um, you can easily tell it's listen, listen to a couple of sentences on radio and you'd know it was him. Um, 
And, and again, it, it's this character that he's established on television over the previous four years that is known the world over. So it's yeah. a great role for him to sort of step in. You know, he's, he's almost like a sort of um, American version of Richard Burton. Yeah, yeah, there's qualities of that in there. The audio drama, there's loads of good references to Manor Uncle, and they keep saying, you know, oh, you yeah. should ring, is it Channel D or something, and, and and get all this sorted out. It's great, you know, it's it's one for proper fans of Vaughan's career, um, but I think the Manor Uncle references were lost on me because it's a bit before... Oh, I, remember, well, I remember it all, but but I mean the interesting thing is is um, it reminds us that that Robert Vaughan was a very very talented individual because there, there are very few Hollywood actors are writing PhDs. Yeah, I had no <laughs> and, idea. You know, right. and he's not, and he's not doing that in retirement. He's doing that while he's while he's an actor. Uh, yeah, and the history what a very unpopular that. subject about you know the the blacklisting of um, com- supposed communist th- sympathisers. Mm. Um, uh, in the sort of Hollywood um, environment, uh, in the, in the, at the height of the sort of McCarthy communist scares, um, and you know that's quite a controversial thing to do because not everyone has sort of quite come to terms. This is only a year, uh, ten years after, um, so he's already sticking his neck out, um, promoting a sort of uh, you know sort of left wing interpretation of, of of Hollywood movie history. Mm. So I'm I'm full of admiration for the, the, you know, the individual he was. Without doubt, without doubt. So, um, as always, I've dug up a retro review from the archives, and we have a, it's a bit of a truncated review. I've taken the start and the end, because the middle was was too long to read in full. Um, so, we've got the New York Times, it's Howard Thompson from August 28, 1969, um, and just before I start to just let listeners know, the movie came out over here in the UK in the summer of 1970 but I'll start the review. There is a curious episodic quality about the Bridget Remagen, a World War II drama that opened yesterday. The United Artists colour feature bristles with excitement one minute and simply sits on his haunches the next. Mr Gwilliman and his excellent photographer have whipped up some fine frenzied warfare on the bridge, although sidelines, vignettes, weaken the culminating wallop. In a genuinely well-performed movie, Mr Gazra, and especially Mr Siegel, who is superb, make rough and real warriors for the all-basic familiarity of these characters. Mr Vaughan, as a tense commander across the water, is excellent. The bridge itself is so impressive, it's worth the disappointment of the picture. <laughs> a little harsh? A little bit, I felt, yeah. Hmm. I mean, it, it certainly it, it could do with some brevity in, in places, perhaps, but it, it, there's no real scenes that, that completely bog it down, I would say. No, I think I think that's fair. I mean, I think the the start is quite slow, but then it went slow burn. Yeah, then I watched it back, and I thought actually it's not that bad because it's setting these characters up. Um, I just think maybe because I, I I'd said later in my in my notes that this is almost Kelly's heroes esque in some of the characters, some of the way the Americans are portrayed at least. Um, when you know the the gruff, ready sergeant with the jeep hat. Um, feels very Kelly's heroesy. I just wonder if maybe in America, at least, maybe the war movie isn't as popular just because of what's going on at home and what's going I th- on. I think Asia. that's a key point, Robbie. Uh, hanging over all of this, the elephant in the room is the Vietnam War. Mm. Um, and it's been going on for a while, but this is the real peak of um, the American setbacks. Tet Offensive um, has happened. Uh, and essentially, the war is extremely unpopular. America's got the draft again, 
Um, uh, and so you've got people being conscripted left, right and centre. This is the height of the, the sort of anti-war movie. Um, mm. And you've got little instances fed into the script there um, that emphasise, you know, the suffering, the civilian suffering particularly, um, the brutalization of the, the young boy who's been turned into a Hitler youth who has to defend his father's shop, yeah. um, the young girl who's offering herself to the American uh, soldier um, in a military barracks, um, the Robert Vaughan character shoots a couple of deserters. Um, you know, all of this is designed to provoke a sort of antipathy towards the whole mm. business of combat. Um, and if we look at the the, the, the score... Um, by Elmer Bernstein, it's not a triumphant score. Um, and in fact, for, for that matter, neither is the score for Kelly's Heroes, which we've looked at before. No. Um, you know, you go back to The Longest Day or earlier to The Dambusters or even The Great Escape, and you've got different kinds of um, melodies mm. being thrown out by the composers. And this is, this is far more ambiguous, that sort of um, uh, the score. That, it seems to be sort of ambiguous. It's, a, yeah. it's like a wave mm. that rises and falls, um, but it's certainly not sort of it, – it, it, I mean, if you didn't know what it was associated with, you wouldn't immediately say warming. No, I think you're right. The, the, the score is very, very strong, I must say. And, and it's strong, it, but, it's, it, yeah. but, it's, but it's not necessarily war-moving. Um, no, and exactly. so, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking at the same time, I mean, uh, if you've seen the movie, I'm sure you have done Waterloo. Yeah. Um, there's, there's anti-war characters inserted in that as the drummer boy leaves his square and wanders around saying, why must there be war? Complete and total you know, nonsense didn't happen. And, and interestingly, in the script, there's a lot that's made up, allegedly, that, that follows the Ken Heckler book. But actually, if you read the after-action reports, there's an awful lot there that's just complete and total nonsense, um, yeah. you know, like... You know, the, the way the civilians were treated, the way they get caught up in the battle, um, the way deserters are shot. Um, there are no specific instances. But in, in, in terms of mood, this is why I think the film is so good. It absolutely captures the mood of the desperation mm, and yeah. the Germans falling mm. apart and picking on their own. Um, and also the tiredness uh, of yeah. you know, the Americans in combat, desperate to get to the, the end of the war intact. Um, and you get, you know... There's a scene where they assault a farmhouse um, and shoot up the table rather than eat the food on it because they're they're suffering from PTSD. They they they've got battle fatigue, and there's a mm. hint of that I think all the way through that's developed in the American characters. Absolutely, you can't yeah. say that's what it is, but and and that's how that's how you speak to a generation who are um, dubious about warfare because of what's happening in Vietnam. Yes, I think it's completely right. And I do think there's a, a, a moment where the film switches from, I wouldn't say typical 1960s, 50s war movie fare, but it's going for that in a way. And then once they reach the bridge, I think something switches, the mood gets darker, the tones get darker as well. Nothing, there's mm. not a lot of light in the movie after that, I don't think. I mean, it doesn't feel that no, way. No, I, I, I agree. Mean. I agree there because obviously it opens with that sequence where they're uh, they're pushing down the road, and it's a beautiful summer day. Obviously, it should have been March. We'll let them yeah. off. Um, there should have been no leaves on the trees, etc. Um, but it's a beautiful day. They're driving down the road towards the farm, 
um, um, Siegel's character is being cautious. The the angsty captain pushes on alone and gets taken out by a Panzerfaust. And it feels when they attack that little farmstead, it's all very methodical. They're going through the motions. They've done it a hundred times before. The way they sweep through, sweep through the house, cut off the the, the rear of the farm. The the half track comes crashing through the, the gates and and cuts off the Germans. It's all very methodical. And then you, as you mentioned, you get Siegel's characters um, just directionless anger because he's so angry with the the situation that he's finding himself in and he shoots up the table because there's nothing he can do he just has to follow orders and you see that again later with um the major's character when he orders him to cross the bridge and take the other side and angel punches him and he says there's a there's a great line where he says did you think we ever had a choice and then he leads the men off on the attack and there's there's a few nice little parts like that with with Seagal and uh, Seagal, and he, he does a great job with it. Mm, they're the strongest part of the film. Um, but as always, we ask what our uh, what our audience think on our one word reviews. We have some crackers this week. Another bumper haul. So thank everyone for getting involved. Um, Kern O'Neill he starts us off with aviators. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we had uh, Lester Bandito. He said cigarette case. Um, nice. Dave Bowen goes, um, is it Angel? Is that how you pronounce his surname? Or is it Anagel? I could never, I could never got it right in the script. What, the character? Yeah, Angel, isn't it? Yeah, Angel. He's Angel. Angel. His, his name's Angelo, That's but he, he calls him yeah, Angel. Yeah, I've seen it written. It. It's, he said Angel, it's a good one. Uh, a lot of people said Chaffee's. Uh, you know, I think there's yes. the world's, probably the 1969's uh, entire supply of Chaffee tanks in this film. <laughs> Then with someone, uh, Dr. Stephen Martin went with mediocre. Adam Brown went with uh, fictionalized. Uh, and then we had a few uh, serve probably with my favorite one word review of ever said unwatched. And that's the most honest one we've ever had. <laughs> no one's ever said they haven't seen the film. Um, and then I'll finish off it with um, Dr. Grant Howard, um, who's it's a double word, but it's I think it's a good one. He finishes us off with anti-heroic. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, which would pick up the theme I've been pushing of, of yeah. um, you know, reaction to the, the Vietnam War. Um, I mean, to those who haven't watched this, I'd certainly recommend it. Um, and my my big um, flag waver here is is you know the mood it um, it pushes from both sides. But I think you're also right in terms. Of, it's a movie in three parts. There's the rush to the bridge. There's the dramatic fight across the bridge, and and then there's the even darker. Um, consequences for the Germans of what happens once the bridge has been taken. Um, yeah. But it is heavily fictionalised. I will pick up the point um, that, that one of your one-word reviewers suggested. Um, there is no rush to get the bridge at Remagen. Um, in fact, we our aim from the Allied point of view is to destroy the bridges, trap all the Germans on the west side. And there's been a bridge-cutting programme since September the previous year. Um, and the only one we failed to destroy is the one at, at, at Remagen, um, because hence the Germans fleeing across it. Um, so that's point one. We, we never expect to get it, um, and we've been actively trying to um, destroy it. Point two is is the um, uh, the Ninth Armoured Division. Uh, their mission is to get to the west bank of the River Rhine, and then turn south down to Koblenz and meet up with Patton's troops who are coming north from Koblenz, 
and, and surround all the Germans on the West Bank and the River Rock. Um, and it's one of those sheer accidents that the bridge is still standing when the Americans get there earlier than expected. And they change their mission from ignoring the, the bridge and going down the riverbank to capturing it because it's actually there. Um, so that's completely at odds with the way the film is set up, which is a race for the bridge. Yeah. Um, even when they get there and they go up the chain of command, what are we going to do about this? There's ambiguity because although the divisional, divisional commander says get across, the corps commander and the army commander and the army group commander are far more ambiguous. And even for the next fortnight, they don't know whether they're going to exploit the bridgehead or they're going to just leave the bridge um, and, and carry on down and join up with Patton. So it, 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 the way Hollywood has handed this as an episode is completely at odds with um, the reality of the combat situation. Um, and you can, you can find all the detail you want that's far more accurate than Ken Heckler's uh, book um, in my latest book, uh, which you were kind enough to plug. And it's all there yes. in Chapter 7. Um, well, there we are. <laughs> it's almost like I... we planned this. Yeah. <laughs> Hello there. Sorry to interrupt. I wanted to let you know that you can now join our supporting cast over on Patreon. As thanks for your support, you'll be able to help us pick films, submit questions for guests, have first pick on brand new and exclusive merch, and much more. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. I suggest really the, the title should be Bridges at Remagen because um, actually what get the bulk of the, the whole American First Army cross at Remagen, but they cross by eight Bailey bridges and pontoon bridges, not by the actual structure itself, because as we know, um, it falls into the River Rhine itself 10 days later. Um, sure. But it's only used for six days. Um, and the bulk of that whole army crossing is by all these other bridges, which are hastily assembled. So this is an, a US Corps of Engineers triumph. But none of that gets told in the film. The, the film no. is all about that 7th of March, 1945, seizure of the bridge. And you know what happens afterwards for the next 10 days until the bridge falls into the rock? is almost more dramatic. Um, and what's happened is Ken Heckler was the, the official US Army historian attached to the 9th Armored Division. And he happened to be there at the time when the bridge was captured and was also there when the bridge falls down. So he wrote this. You know, very, he wrote up his experiences. Um, and, what, and what happens to him after the war, he's assistant to President Truman. Um, and later on, he becomes a Democratic congressman. So when his book comes out in 1957, he's a really high profile political character. And that all adds to the cachet of the book. Um, and, and it's another reason why it gets made into a film. You've got a ready-made screenplay in Ken Heckler's book. But actually, once you start to tease apart, uh, I'm sorry, I'm being a very boring historian no, no. now, but once you, no, it's great. once you look at the after-action reports, you suddenly realise that actually Ken Heckler's paid fast, fast um, and loose with the truth. Um, and it, it isn't as he told uh, his story at all. Um, the, I mean, the other, the other sort of, observation I would make is that there's a really odd thing going on in the 1970s of taking great historical events and fictionalizing all the characters. Yeah. So the Great Escape does this. Um, the Battle of Britain does this. Uh, and the Bridge at Remagen does this. 
Um, yeah. It doesn't have to be because you, you've, you've also got this Paris Burning, which is coming out at the same sort of time, which, which has all the right names of all the right people. And nowadays, you know, you, you would um, think of a bridge too far. Everyone is all the, all the stars are tied into real people. With mm. the same with the longest day, but that's the you know same writer, isn't it? So that makes sense. Yeah, um, but but here, I, from the Bulge, the world's worst war movie, as you well know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the the whole, I can see no reason why the names are all. That that really puzzles me. Major Scheller is is uh, is the real Major Hans Scheller is is Robert Vaughan character who's who's. Mm pointlessly renamed as Major Kruger, mm. um, but I see no reason for it. Carl Timmerman um, uh, and, uh, and Sergeant Drevnik uh, are, are renamed for the benefit of the film, but I can see, I don't know what's going on in the 1960s, but, but there was this sense that you, 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 you draw a veil over the real character. You, you portray them in every way except using their real name. And now we look back on this, yeah, we look back on this now and say, why? Um, there must have been some sort of culture going on at the uh, at the time. Just like the accuracy. I mean, we this is a this is a war movie where actually they try and get the accuracy far more than most war movies going on at the time. Um, mm. That's partly because it's filmed in the Czech Republic, and and the Czechs um, are making a lot of World War II era equipment for their own use. Uh, and then they're selling it um, as well. So that's why you've got all the right kind of Kubelwagen and um, uh, armoured cars, uh, half-tracks, in the background looking German because they are German. Um, and, you know, the, the the American vehicles are have come from Austria because the Austrian army is equipped with American vehicles. So it's really what you can hire um, at the going rate. And that's why there's Chaffee tanks and not Shermans. There are cha- Chaffees in the uh, reconnaissance battalions um and it's a great shame that they get so much prominence because there should have been lots and lots of shermans but ironically there is a troop uh of pershing tanks that are deployed to the remagen bridge m26 pershings um and there are several that are deployed uh in the first army in that last couple of months in the war um and they they turn up there's a a whole troop of them that turn up at the Remagen Bridge. Now, those would have been easy to source in Germany. Mm. Um, yeah, but, it would have been. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But they're, 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 they're left out of the equation, which is is a great shame. Um, makes and me if we go back what, to that... Sorry. It always makes me think what they scrapped because of the, inver- the Soviet invasion. Things oh. might have been planned for to be bought in. Then they're, then they're in... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Italy, what can they get? Or oh, it's Chaffees. You know, we're not. I'm not too sure where the the things from that were bought in from the Czechs and the Austrians. Yeah, where the cut off in filming was. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. Actually, I'm not sure of the details there, so I'm, I, I might I might um, whip the uh, the screenplay uh, and, and uh, pyrotechnics guys a little less than um, <laughs> than uh, I, I was doing there. Um, but I, I I really take issue with the opening scene where you've got all the chaffies speeding along the road, and the film is double speed. Mm, and and the idea it. is, yeah, the idea is to obviously get the race going to get yes. the to, to, of the US Army to try and seize all these bridges. Well, A, I said it's it's false. But I mean the, the, the tanks just don't travel at that speed and it just it's demonstrably silly. Mm. Well there's uh, I mean maybe we should quickly move into the alley tally because we're starting to talk about okay, right. equipment. Yeah. But that's fine. No, no, we love we love eagerness. It's fine, don't worry. So talking about the kit and equipment there and talking about that race at the start of the sequence, I think that maybe, is that not influenced by, there's a painting um, that I've seen of the fighting of the brick going over the bridge and it looks like you're being drawn into the, through to the bridge and they echo that on the poster. So is there not, some people have just seen some paintings done at the time and just taking it really literally as if, oh, it's a race to get over this bridge. And they've just thought, well, you know, we'll just take this guy's book as I, I think they've taken it, it as inspiration from the cinematography, but I mean, as as Peter mentioned there, that 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 bridge isn't even Remagen. It that's uh, is it Obendorf that um, is, um and I don't I yeah think the first bit of the film yeah I think I think that that bridge was destroyed when U.S. forces weren't even in sight of it, um you know because of the the bridge um, destroying campaign that Peter mentioned earlier on, so that whole thing is just fabricated to give that sense of impetus and urgency and the race to capture these bridges which never existed as, as peter said earlier it, it it wasn't a thing they weren't trying to capture these bridges they were they would have much preferred to have bombed them and, and mm. not be up yeah. at all yeah and not waste like you know really expensive new pershing tanks on them um <laughs> so well, i mean that so you said that's a really interesting point because the remagen bridge is bombed in september 1944 and put out of commission and we don't know how much the damage was, but it 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 stopped the remark. The, well, technically, it's the Ludendorff railway bridge yes. um, from operating, and trains couldn't cross it until it was repaired. This is why, ten days on um, after its capture, it falls into the River Rhine um, because it's actually been bombed by the Americans long before this story even begins. And then the Germans do all their different time versions of sabotage. Never mind the demolition explosives to try and rob the Americans of this, this very useful asset. Um, but at the time, as I was suggesting, that there's a big debate within the Americans as to whether this is any use to them, because it doesn't lead anywhere. The road network on the east bank of the uh, River Rhine at that juncture is really poor, um, mm -hmm. and the roads don't head eastwards to any logical military objectives in Germany. And that's, that's why First Army um, and um, 12th Army Group push back and say yeah but you know we're not sure we're going to exploit this this opportunity that you've taken at the great cost of american blood and, and treasure um because it doesn't fit in with our plan and these it doesn't actually lead anywhere well mm. eventually they come to their senses but all of that is left out of the story 
Yeah. A quick question for you, Peter. Those Bailey bridges that you mentioned earlier, how close did they put them to the original bridge? Were they in Remagen themselves or were they further along the river elsewhere? Um, you no, know, incredibly close. I mean, they're up and down a, a sort of 12-mile stretch of the river. Um, but right. there are two either side of the, the Remagen Bridge. Oh, so you would go so, through, drive so through Remagen town. Mm, um, that's, and I, that's so I, interesting that they the bridge almost became an anchor that they never really intended. So they, they totally. based their logistical effort around that bridgehead, whereas they never really planned to do that anyway, because they could have built a, a Bailey Bridge anywhere on the Rhine, you know, yeah, as long as it true. wasn't contested, because yeah. they had the ability to cross a river and then build. So, I mean, I, that's fascinating. I mean, what, what I find fascinating is is the, <clears throat> the, the movie for me is absolutely spot on in terms of mood as to how it was in Germany in the US Army, in, in March 1945. And I can't think of another movie that, that portrays that as well. But in terms of the actual action, um, the more you uncover and the more you think about it, it's complete and total fiction. It's, it's based around, you know, one event, but everything leading up to it is wrong. Um, and there's no story after it, which, which mm. as I keep saying, is, is you know, it, in some ways, you know, far more interesting. It's this um, little anomaly battle that doesn't have to happen, but does. Yeah, yeah that's a very good, very, very good word for it. So um, it, it, it's odd it creeps up into my sort of, you know, one of my favourite war movies, but it does on mood and atmosphere and things mm. like that. I thought it was very unusual that they they inserted that um, train load of what's ins insinuated to be V two rockets that comes careening down the path and a, a young. A motorbike officer comes up and says, don't blow the bridge, just to insert a little bit more jeopardy about whether yeah. Robert Vaughan was going to blow the bridge or not. And then the chaffy tanks just completely... Destroy them anyway. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, the story... Okay, so I mean, the big story there is why didn't the Germans blow the bridge up much earlier and this whole sorry saga would never have happened? Um, and the answer is, um, at the tail end of the previous year... Um, all German bridges were built, even after the Second World War, with demolition chambers inside. Um, and so after the Second World War, it's to stop the Soviets coming and, and taking them. Uh, so the idea was you could blow up any bridge in Germany. Uh, and after the First World War, all German bridges were, were built like that. Um, it was because they were the responsibility of the German army and the German railway service was part of the German military. Um, so the, the Ludendorff Railway Bridge had demolition chambers in it. Um, and so every German bridge routinely that was at risk had explosives in, and all you had to do was wire them up and, and press the plunger. And there was a bridge in Cologne that had that. Um, and the RAF were busy bombing Cologne one evening. Um, some bombs dropped near, and there was what's called a sympathetic explosion. Uh, and you can trigger high explosive just by the, the pulse of, of a a very close explosion and the bridge came down and Hitler was so furious and couldn't really blame anyone. He then ordered all <laughs> explosives taken out of the demolition chambers and they could only be put in at the last moment. And then the officer in charge uh, was given the order, which, which would come direct from Berlin or whatever. And that's why this whole nonsense sort of, of, of explosives being put in at the last minute and then too few and of, poor quality and the film does get that bit right uh, and there's this rush to try and prepare the bridge to explode it at just the right moment 
And of course, it's a gamble. It always is. And this is actually a military manoeuvre called a reserve demolition. And you wait until the last minute to get as many of your people across the bridge as possible. Um, but it's high high risk because if the if the other guys get there, as the U.S. Army do, remarking, then they've taken the bridge from you. Um, mm. So you delay destroying it until the last possible moment, and so, a nominated individual has the responsibility of issuing the order, and there's paperwork involved. Now, this you know to to the layman sounds sure. absolute nonsense, but this is where it comes from. Oh no, me, me and Matt have watched the. <laughs> Watch Demo Guard, the uh, in the eighties SSVC film all about blowing a bridge. We find it fascinating. You're you're absolutely right, and that normally you you do a study day on a bridge in Germany or in the UK, but they'd show the bridge at Remagen and that services sound oh, and marvelous. vision corporation oh, film. Great, and, amazing, and, and this is used because it's the historical backdrop to everything right. we did all the way through BAOR days. Okay. And it plays through right to today. Um, and, you know, essentially, obviously, the Robert Horn character um, does what he's ordered, but it all goes horribly wrong for him and he gets shot at the end of the day, um, mm. just as the original Major Scheller does. Um, and I suppose the subtext is, you know, follow your orders or this too could happen to you. That's fascinating stuff there. I mean, I never thought we'd get onto bridge demoing, but it's great. Um, <laughs> so getting on to sort of some of the things that the film that's historically that I do like. So it has Volksturm in it and Western media sort of doesn't really, it either doesn't give the Volksturm the time of day, it just portrays them as this ragtag force of lads with Panzerfaust on bikes. But this film actually gives them time to set up defences. You show them in, in battle, which is something we don't really have in Western films. Um, of, of World War II movies, at least. And we have De Brucker, the German film, which have, features them heavily, but yeah. not in the terms of, of Western movies. And then I really like the fact that it shows US um, troops wearing late war US uniforms, wearing M43 jackets and uh, the boots with the gaiters built in, um, things like that. It's, it's, it's really got a lot going for it in terms of kit and equipment, but then somewhere things get lost in, in there. Um, and then the only immersion break that I could really pick it up for kit-wise was some guys have got 30-round banana clips on their M1 carbines. And that's such a small yes, thing. But, you know, I, I do... I, the, the kit they got supplied by the Czechs was just top-notch. It was. There's loads of really interesting stuff in there. You've got Angel with his MP40 and his PO8 Luger on his belt, which is very... Very, uh, very odd. I was about to say, it's very yeah. oddball. Um his character is almost like a mix between Telly Savalas's character in Battle of the Bulge and kind of Oddball. It's like a mishmash of those two mixed together. He's he's hard faced, but a little bit, little bit laid back, lax, plays it loose. Um, he's always looting dead gems, etc. You know. Mm. Um, and there's there's that one chap that's got the the triple jungle mag on his Thompson. I know, right? On the bridge. The re- lesser spotted triple jungle. I know. Mag. The only other film I can think of a, a triple jungle mag is. Um, um, no. uh, that he doesn't. Oh, it's the Wild Geese or something. The Steve McQueen movie. Um, to Helm? Not Sand to Helm. Back. No, no. Not no. Sam oh, God. It's, uh, it's got Hell in the title. <laughs> this is terrible yeah, for Hell a, is a hero. Yeah. 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 I think he's got. I think he's got uh, a triple. I, I think he has. Yeah. In in that, 
on his on his grease gun. Um, but that's interesting. And then, as we've already talked about the chaffies, one thing I, I, I will mention that I thought was interesting is the 88s up on the hill that double as uh, anti-tank guns covering the bridge. They're, um, they're Soviet M1939 uh, K-52. It's the the, the 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 Soviet equivalent of the eighty eight, but um, they look they look they look the part, but they're they're a little they bit different do. looking. Yeah, but the thing that annoys me the most is they've got all this kit, but a lot of the the fight sequences on the ridge lines are so static. They just need a little mm. bit more movement in them. Considering how good that that village that fighting in villages sequence is, that's so good, and mm. really yeah, the scale is. of that's fantastic. Then you just you get a line of chaffy tanks fighting a line of anti-tank guns, and it's just a little bit too static for me. I want a little bit more movement. You've got tanks, use them. <laughs> it's like well, it's some, some of those parts choice. are quite curtailed because it just shows American troops moving through positions, and it's all to give you that focus on the bridge. I think it does, you don't want to be seeing them fighting on the outskirts. It's it's Siegel on the bridge with the with the platoon and the the jeopardy of getting across that bridge. Um, there's a nice little nod to Czech weaponry in there as well with um, ZB-26 is you know the the ancestor okay. of the Bren, and they're seen either side of the the the, the mouth of the tunnel. Um, well, that says a lot about and, German wheeling out any old thing. Exactly, to and it, it, yeah. ex- exactly, it's it's Germans using ersatz, um, I think it is, um, uh, weapons that they've captured, etc. And they did that. It's that was another one of those little elements where I think. The film does a lot of little nods to create tone and um, and feel and a bit of a, a vibe um, mm. for the period, and that's one of the elements that does it quite well. That mix of of, of weapons that they they include. But um, right, can I can I throw in a sort of weapony sure, sort of observation absolutely. here? Um, there's there's lots of yeah urban warfare going on, fighting through Remagen, and there's all of the, the exchange of fire across the bridge. Um, and you're quite close up to the um, infantry on both sides. You never see empty shell cases being ejected from any of the weapons, and you don't hear them bouncing on the cobbled streets. Mm. And, I mean, the first movie that really gets to grips with that is Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, the sound design in this is a bit lacking. There's that ricochet sound that I don't think I've ever heard so much in my life. And even the fact the ricochet a ricochet sound effect is being used for the gun of the chaffies, yeah. that's really jarring oh, yeah. after a while. Mm. It, yeah, it's the a, well, well there's, a, there's another point. You see, MG forty two is being fired. I think from yes, the towers of the um, of the bridge, um, but the noise they're given is of a much slower machine gun. Mm. It's not the mm. high yeah. sound of um, cloth being ripped. Um, or the bandsaw, which is what it was known as, Hitler's bandsaw. Um, so there's a, an anomaly there. Um, there's another bit where, which is a, a continuity issue. Robert Vaughan um, sees two deserters running away, and so he shoots them. Um, mm. And at the beginning of that sequence, you see the Luger being drawn from his pistol holster. Um, as he's shooting them, he's shooting them with a P-38, and he's, he's, All right. yeah, his handgun has changed. Even but, and his first round goes into the floor. If you look at his arm, when they play the sound effect for the for the, ah. the gunfire, his arm isn't. It's aiming at the floor because he fires about four times, doesn't he? That's the right. First one but in, in none the of the cases off. do you see any rounds ejected from the pistol mm. anyway. You don't yeah. hear the the, the tinkle of brass on on floor. So the you know the little things like that we can uh, we can argue about mm. till the cows. I think you know that's what afflicts all movies of of that decade. 
and yeah. the seventh. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's very. That's just how they were made at the time. Very nailed on for that. But I know that um, in terms of supplying, um, a couple of companies that did lose their kit and equipment was uh, Matt might know these ones. Um, Ellis Mercantile Co, Stenbridge Gun Rentals, and Baptiste. That's who supplied Ooh, Baptiste. Baptiste. Wow. Yeah, the Baptiste. they were in that one million dollars that was accounted for loss. Those companies had a like you know a hat in the ring loss wise. And that's what was reported. Mm. I'm, then, I'm sure they did. If I was yeah. renting out five <laughs> and there was a Soviet invasion, yeah. I would put every single loss I'd had for the previous ten years. Back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, especially if, um, especially if Hollywood's picking there was up the early um, BARs pop up again. And I didn't mention this last. I, I can't remember whether I did or not, but we we covered Porkchop Hill last week with Gregory Peck, which is a fabulous film. And all the BARs in that are the the World War One pattern, the earlier pattern BAR. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, they are. Yeah. And they pop up again in this one as well. So I, I, I do wonder which armor, uh, film armor is providing those early BARs. And I, I hope they weren't left in Czechoslovakia because they're, they're lovely looking guns. Yeah, they are rare <laughs> they because the US rare. Army converted them all to uh, the, the A2 configuration and arguably ruined them. Well, there we are. Ending the alley telly there on some, some BAR chat. So I think that moves us in to some favourite scenes and final thoughts. Hello, I'm David Willey. I'm the curator from the Tank Museum and you're listening to Fighting on Film. So, Peter, you're, you're our guest. Please, you're, you're, some of your favourite moments. As I opened, I rather loathe the way it starts with the, the speeding up sequence, which, which does nothing. Um, mm. I've always been gripped by the um, attack on the farmhouse um, and just how quickly mm. that moves and the half track sort of bursting through the gates. That, that to me, speaks of how every fighting, every fight through a German uh, domestic sort of farmyard would, probably was in the latter few weeks of, of World War II. Um, and I think they get that right. I mean, bridges are incredibly difficult to portray, but I do like the sort of combat leading up to the bridge. Take away, you know, the, the two firing lines, which are almost Napoleonic, a line of tanks versus a line of guns. I mean, it's mm. it's um, nonsensical. None of the none of the tank gun barrels recoil, by the way, which shows that no. the firing no, they lines don't, as well. Yeah. <laughs> you, you get your eye in. Um, but the, the actual action on the bridge itself, I mean, but all of, I mean, the problems with the film um, historically are all really cinema uh, cinematography ones. You know, how, where do you put the camera to capture the action? Um, and it's the same with the bridge. It's incredibly difficult to portray, um, you, you know, fighting your way along a bridge and, and the whole thing exploding and going up in your face. They miss the cul the culverts being uh, blown right before they uh, attack attack the bridge. So there's a uh, uh, the approach road is blown up with the idea of stopping the Americans arriving, uh, and that's still there today. I mean, I mean the the other important thing to know about the bridge at Remagen is there were twin stone towers at either end, and they still remain, although the bridge came down. Um, and one of them is is now a peace museum. Uh, but in front of the uh, stone towers on the on the west bank, um, there's an approach road which was blown, and that's that really triggers the whole fighting, um, and that rather gets mi missed out of the film. But the um, the battle sequence I thought was quite good. I mean, and, and everybody loves the end when Robert Vaughan is shot, 
Um, and the you know the uh, the sign off line, the, the the final lines he utters. Um, he's asked by he uh, he's given a, a final cigarette by the NCO uh, in charge of the firing party, uh, and they look up uh, at the aircraft flying overhead. Um, and uh, uh, Robert Vaughan asks, uh, uh, "Who's are they?" Um, and the NCO, I think, says, uh, I don't know whether they're ours or the enemies. And Vaughan looks at him and says, oh, but who is the enemy? Yeah. <laughs> so and it, knows. It, it, yeah, I mean, it's very stereotypical. But, but you, you know, your heart bleeds for Robert Vaughan because mm. you wish. I mean, he's played his part so well. Um, I don't know why he didn't get an Oscar for it. Because um, I, yeah, don't no know, I don't know what either. was going on there. No year. nominations for anyone in this, which is a surprise, no. isn't it? Yeah, because it was a it was a hit when it came out. I didn't think it did badly, um, oh. from what I found out. But I think you're right there. The, it's Vaughan, isn't it? It's Vaughan and Seagal, and that's for me. I my, my two main favorite parts of this movie is where the two men break almost, you know, next to each other. So Seagal's trying to take the bridge. His, his friend Angel is shot, and he loses it, and he starts bludgeoning a, a corpse, um, you know, out of frustration. And then you hear Houtman in the distance and it cuts to Vaughan and he's trying to rustle up a ragtag force to go out and do some raids on the American uh, lines. And the men, some men run and, and as uh, Peter mentioned earlier, Vaughan draws a pistol and shoots at them and kills two of them. And you think, well, that's curtains now for Vaughan. He's lost command. You know, he's toast. He's, these people are going to rise up. And they're going I like to... the abject look of shock after he realizes what he's done in that yeah. scene. I think Vaughn totally plays cracked. that very well. It really strong performances. Um, and then you you get um, him saying it's my duty, and then Houtman says your duty is to these people, and he finally sort of you know thinks actually no, this is my responsibility now, and he offers to go back and get reinforcements, and that's his index really. You don't he doesn't come back after that. But that's really some. I wasn't, ex- and I also wasn't expecting the tiny little fourth wall break you get when he says he's been arrested. He just looks at the camera, at the audience, so just for a split second almost, and looks absolutely shocked that he could possibly be arrested for doing, in his mind, doing his job. It just shows the absurdity of the German army falling apart. That you know, rather than sending this battle-hardened commander somewhere where he could do a job, maybe somewhere else, and, and by the the Wehrmacht a couple more days somewhere they think no no we'll try you and, and we'll shoot you and that's to me that's a unf- it's not a nice end for Vaughan but it's a nice end in a historical sense because it's trying to show in its way how the war was going at that time and I think that's probably the strong one of the strongest parts I just think it's Vaughan and Seagal are great <laughs> I think one of the huge challenges here is we know how it ends yeah. And that is always, you know, the, the producer-director's challenge. Um, how can you distract people from where they know the movie is taking you? And they do that with incredibly strong acting and a very good script that gives depth to the, the chief characters who need depth. Mm. Um, and that's what makes this a very uncharacteristic war movie for the 60s and 70s. What you've got are people with real depth that the movie allows them to have. And, and that distracts you. It takes you away from the story you already know. You know the bridge is going to be captured by the Americans um, and, and that it's all going to go wrong for the, the Germans. 
Um, but by drilling down into these characters and actually showing their their frailties, their combat stress, the the um, the way the Third Reich just is disintegrating, I think does us you know an, an enormous service. Um, mm. So yes, it's heavily fictionalized, but in, uh, you know, go back to what I say in terms of atmosphere and mood, it delivers a lot, and. and that's despite the counterbalance of what's happening in Vietnam at the same time as the movie is coming out. Mm. So that's why I think it, you know, it, it, it works. It merits sort of high attention from my point of view. Um, and it does deliver. And if you contrast that with something that comes out nearly a decade later, a bridge too far, where you're, you're telling a, a similar um, story again, based around a bridge or bridges, um, but using real people and a, a bigger cast and a much, much better budget. So much of the acting there is cardboard compared with the depth. You don't really get combat yeah. stress and you'd certainly, you know, the Germans are just baddies in A Bridge Too Far. There's none of that tension that you've got yeah. on the German side in the, the Bridget Remagen. And that's very rare for a war movie that comes out 20, 30, 40 years after the Second World War that really throws up the... the um, tension on the German side. They're, they're cardboard cutouts. Um, you know, they might as well be the equivalent of Zulus for the mm. amount of depth that you get in on, on the other side. But Bridget Remagen just goes that extra stage to you know flesh out um, mm. how it is for the other side. Yeah, it gives it does give the Germans a lot of, of it humanizes them the, the, in a way that a lot of war movies don't. I mean we haven't mentioned the the sequence where I mean, God knows how that Liberator got anyway near that bridge. It looked like it was going to fall out of the sky in the movie. <laughs> it just didn't look like airworthy to me at any one point. But anyway, but when that bomber comes in, the way that sequence is filmed on the bridge, there's canted angles. It's showing you men, machines, horses, trucks, everything trying to get off that bridge. And it's just people in sheer panic. And you've got Robert Vaughan walking through it like, you know, like he's the man from Del Monte or something. He's just absolutely, you know, making a beeline Carnage, to get off it. Yeah. He's, nothing's hitting him. You know, he's, he's a star. He's wearing a plot armour, um, plot armour leather jacket. But that scene is really interesting because it's not played off like, here comes the American Air Force to save the day, blow up this bridge. It's played for, oh, what? there's human beings on this bridge and they're going to get bombed and it's not their fault. They're just on a bridge at the wrong time. You know, it, it, it's, it's very, that's quite brave filmmaking for the time. You know, you're, you're presenting warfare in a not in a jingoistic manner to probably an audience at home as we mentioned before that are apathetic to warfare at this point probably i mean the real story of, of air power is is the 10 days afterwards when the germans try and destroy the bridge they throw 367 planes at wow. the bridge there are sorties from dawn to dusk every single day for the next 10 days um and the the Americans deploy the equivalent of 49 battalions of anti-aircraft artillery, which is the largest deployment of air defense ever in U.S. Army history, just wow. in and around the bridge. Uh, and so you've got you've got air raids happening every minute of every day over the next couple of weeks, plus 11 V2 rockets aimed at the bridge, plus wow. a... Um, 540 millimeter coal mortar that is throwing one and a half ton shells at the bridge at the same time. Lots of artillery when it's in range in the first couple of days firing blind. I mean, that's this is what all combines to make the structure fall down eventually. Um, but that's far more traumatic yeah. 
if you think about it, than what's happened at Remagen Bridge, because there's a, a real firefight for about an hour, mm. and then the bridge is suppressed. Mm. Um, and yet, you know, the subsequent days, goodness me, there's, there's red hot lumps of metal flying around for days and days and days. Um, we'll make a great with, US with, Army know, huge, engineers huge, film. A huge injury. Yeah, I wonder if there's one out there. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, what's your what's your takeaway from this one this week? Uh my favorite scene within the film is obviously the 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 fighting within the town itself and and that um climactic um street fight where the the um the face of the building collapses mm. um and they they run into the Volksturm and as you've already mentioned Rob the Volksturm are so rarely shown in film i found it fascinating that they decided to do that in this one and i also thought it was really interesting that they did that but when you think about it the audience would have just assumed it was ragtag german soldiers so we yeah. we probably recognize that it's Volksturm, it's old men ragtag uniforms um young boy with an mp40 up in the the inn and we we recognize that as Volksturm. but i suppose in 1969 the average cinema goer would have had no real idea that the, the Germans had even really? formed this sort of home guard militia. Um, so I found that really fascinating. Uh, that coupled with their use of Panzerfausts, because anti-tank weapons are one of my areas of, of research, I found it really fascinating that the portrayal of Panzerfausts in the film was quite good. It showed them as being effective but inaccurate, mm-hmm. wielded by poorly trained troops, the Volksturm. Um, and there aren't there aren't a great many depictions. We've already mentioned Deed Rucker. Um, yeah. That's probably one of the more iconic examples of the the Panzerfaust being used, um, where one of them buys it from his chest and ends up mortally wounding himself. Mm. Um, I found those scenes really fascinating. But in in terms of final thoughts on what I thought of the film, I've I've watched it for years. It's you know it's one of those ones that are always on a, on a, a weekend afternoon. Watched it with my grandfather a dozen times, no doubt. Um, and it's it's an interesting one. It's a slow burn at the beginning, but then we get this eruption of the culmination of these two commanders that are facing such climactic circumstances. And that's what the film's really about. It's it's not it's almost not about the bridge itself. It's about these these two men experiencing this climactic end almost to their war it is for Vaughan it's less so for Siegel's character but it's this culmination at the end of the war for for these two characters and as Peter's mentioned a number of times I really like the way that they get that tone of the end of the war um Mm. the atmosphere feels right another film I, I always think does that really rather well is Fury I think they capture late war and the reality of a battlefield quite well a lot of this film reminds me of Fury, especially that bit in the start where they show the American sort of motorcade where they've got all their mm. tanks and, and armoured cars. Perhaps it was that an is, influence. Yeah, mm. I'm sure David David Ayer must have seen this or be a fan of it because it really feels like it. I wouldn't especially be surprised. Like the ground down sort of feeling you get about the American troops in this, you feel like they've been through it like too much. Um, and that's something I really think the film should be lauded for because there yeah, aren't many movies about the end of the war, really. Well, there aren't, no, and it's a fascinating portrayal of opposing war-weary officers who know the war's over, but they have to carry on following orders regardless. Mm-hmm. And the performances that the two leads give um, 
in this respect. They it it breaks the tradition of likable hero and it gives you two almost anti-heroes. Yeah. Um and it, it at times it makes the film a difficult watch. And they're unlikable characters a lot of the time, I think. Um, none of the characters in the film are particularly likable. That there's the the homely Houtman that commands the bridge and used to be the the, the town schoolmaster. He's kind of likable and the voice of reason, you know. Mm. Um, trying to get Vaughn to to blow the bridge and uh, go, you know, think of the civilians, etc. But it's it's um it's an interesting movie, and we've we've already mentioned Battle of the Bulge and, and compared it to some contemporaries, but I think it, I think it stands well on its own, but. As we've all already mentioned, it it is a film that you have to realise that it doesn't portray the reality of the events no. as well as it possibly could have done. Um, but when you when you compare it to a lot of war movies of the period, it, they they don't really concern themselves a great deal with getting that pinpoint accuracy. Really, no. That's but I think that's more of a newer idea, really. Like a like mid nineties onwards, I think perhaps that's not. Well, I mean, a bridge too far attempts it, and so does Longest yeah. Day. Although we could go on, we could yeah, we could dive yeah. into that. <laughs> I'm sure, but um, but yeah, it, it there's a sliding scale there. That's for I think sure. you're right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that's Bridget Remagen, isn't it? It's a it is. It's and a if good... you want to know the reality behind Bridget Remagen, do pick up Peter's book. Was it? Was it yeah. I think it was Chapter Seven that um, that covers it. I believe Peter said. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think the important thing about the the whole story, um, um, whether it's my chapter you're going to read Ken Hickler's sort of hyped up um, version or the movie itself, is a lot of people see it as the the um, shorthand for the end of the Second World War in Europe. Um, mm. We've got to get across the River Rhine, and once we're across the River Rhine, that's it. it it's uh, it's game over for the Germans, which is anything but the truth. Yeah. Um, and there's almost nothing that deals with, um, in, in movie terms, the fighting in Western Europe in 1945. Um, you know, there's a bit of fury, there's a bit of um, uh, remarket. But, I mean, there's this whole awful campaign, which is what my book is all about. Um, and there's this massive British river crossing that, that happens three weeks later further north that has just never been attempted in terms of movie history. No. Um, and these are huge, huge things. I mean, that was an undertaking of the size of sort of D-Day. So this is our only window in, in Hollywood terms into, you know, this major battle in 1945 um, that finishes the war. Eisenhower's got four million men under command. Um, and yet the only, only episode of this really that's hit the, the big screen has been Bridget Remagen, which is based on a tiny, tiny subunit, if you think about it. It's really yeah. a, a couple of companies of uh, Combat Command B uh, of the 9th Armoured Division um, that elevates so many people's careers because of what they managed to achieve, and that's the way that you know the US Army works. So that, that's another important aspect to this. It, it's our only window into um, that era of, uh, of fighting. And because its mood is right, and because I think the characters are so well acted, that's these are all the reasons why I rate it really very highly. And there we have it, folks. Bridget Remagen. I mean, we enjoyed it. I hope you, if you haven't seen it, go and find it. It's out there. And if you haven't read Peter's book yet, you've got no excuse because it's out there for all to all and sundry to purchase and, and enjoy. So again, Peter, thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you. I've enjoyed it hugely. I'll meet you on a bridge somewhere someday. 
perhaps the one that they're going to rebuild in Rhymagen. That would be nice. Oh, yes, it? yes. That's that's mm. the footnote, isn't it? The important mm. footnote. Um, only last week, um, the locals have lobbied the uh, the regional authorities, and they want to they want a replacement bridge across the Rhine because there's none in that twenty mile stretch between Cologne and Mainz. And the place they want it is at Remagen because there's always been one. Um, and you know, if that's not history healing, yes. Um, and you know, so they want a new structure between the towers that are there, and the whole Fort thing Bridge, to be sort of yeah. resurrected. And that's a really good note. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks for that, Matt. Um, a really good note on which to end. Um, so, you know, this may be a destination of choice uh, on the German road network or rail network uh, in the future. Who knows? Who knows? It's a fabulous ending. And um, of course, you know, you can follow the podcast on social media, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, all that good stuff. And uh, you can find the entire back catalogue of the show at fightingwithfilm.com. Why not start from episode one and see how, how long you uh, grow sick of us? So, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we'll catch you all next week. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Brilliant. Thank you. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.